Welcome to the Boonville Worship Center Sermon Podcast. So good evening. Welcome to a Wednesday night Bible study. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that you've given us your mind, your heart, your desire for us in the word that you've provided. Now help us to be good students of that word. Not just to read and, and, and think, but that, that the word might change us as we dig into it more and begin to understand what it is you've intended us to be as your children, as believers that are grafted in. I thank you for that. It's just, it's incredible to be called a child of the King. And so I thank you that we can get together tonight, study your word, bless this time, and illuminate our hearts and our minds. We pray this in, in your name. Amen. All right, we are in the book of First Thessalonians. There's a handout. If you didn't get one, raise your hand and Max will be happy. In fact, this is a stupid expression, but he'll be more than happy. I never really understand what that means, more than happy. How do you get more than happy? Anyway, he would be glad to give you a handout. All you have to do is raise your hand. Okay, so can you find the book of First Thessalonians? There's one right there, Debbie. Sorry. <laughs> Do you know how to find the book of First Thessalonians? And everybody says, sure, no problem. Well, see, I had to come up with this mnemonic when I was learning the, the books of the Bible when I was a kid. TH comes before TI, doesn't it? Alphabetically. Therefore, Thessalonians is before Timothy. That's a... N- never mind. Okay. <laughs> You can find it, or you've got an index in the front of your Bible. You can look it up. 1 Thessalonians is where we're going to be for the next several weeks. And so on on this handout that I've given you, I have to give credit to the person from whom I stole this. It's from Chuck Swindoll. And this is the book called Contagious Christianity that I stole some of these pictures from. And, okay, so for me, you, you can just read the Word. You can read the Word devotionally, right? And I would recommend that. You can read devotional commentaries. They are great. If you can read F.B. Meyer, his, his devotional commentary in the book of John is wonderful. The thing, the thing that I really like to do is to dig in. Understand what the Word tells us, but understand the background behind it. So, you know, like any situation, you want to answer the questions. Who, what, when, where, why, and how? So that's where I start thinking as I look at a book of the Bible. Who wrote it? Okay, any guesses? That wasn't a guess, was it? It's also on the sheet. So So Paul is the author of the book. To whom was it written? 
Okay, it was written to believers. How many books did Paul write? There are 27 books in the New Testament. How many of that 27 did Paul write? Exactly. 13 books. I would actually say that he wrote 14, because I think he wrote the book of Hebrews. But we can, we can have a cup of coffee over that one. So I think that he wrote 13 books of the New Testament. They're directed to, to different groups of people. Mostly to groups of believers. He wrote some directly to a person. Who? Can you name those books? I already gave you one. He did one and two Timothy. What's another book that Paul wrote to a person? I know it's Wednesday night. I know I'm really stretching your brains, but... <laughs> wow, this is really helpful. Thank you. Um, how about Philemon? And how about Titus? Okay. So I think those are the books that Paul wrote to specific people. Then he wrote books to churches, groups of believers. Can you name those? Okay. So he wrote one and two Corinthians. Okay. To the church at Ephesus. And the church in Galatia, which we call Galatians. Okay. To the church at Colossae. Well, see, I said Hebrews because I think the style is Paul. But it's not really attributed to Paul. So I'll put that one out here in, in special parentheses. <laughs> Okay, Church of Philippi. Oh my. So we got two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. What are we missing? Okay, one of the most important books to me in, in the New Testament is the book of Romans. Because Paul lays out all the theology that you need to know in that book. Okay? Anybody else want to help finish the list? Okay, we're going to do 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Now i got to look at my list to make sure what, see if we missed anything. I think we got it. Okay. So when you think about the, the New Testament and there's 27 books, what does that tell you? Paul wrote half the New Testament. 
So without the Apostle Paul, we would not have all of this important doctrine, teaching, and history. Right? So Paul is, is really critical to us understanding God's message to us. So we're going to look a little bit at Paul and his history. We're going to look a little bit at the church that Paul is writing to in Thessalonica. So at the top of the page on the handout, and this is the page I'm referring to, it's got a table on it. There's five chapters in 1 Thessalonians. First three are um, the pastor's heart as this, at this, this table shows it, and then the last two are the pastor's burden. So the first three looking back, and the last two looking ahead. Tonight we're going to look at chapter 1. And what are the, the main bullet points of that chapter? Thanksgiving, remembering, affirming, and reporting. And this chapter is really focused on the new converts that are at this group of believers in the town of Thessalonica. Okay, so I want to get some background. Before we launch into the book, I want us to understand how this book fits into the history. So if you, if you got your Bible, I hope you do. If you got your phone, you can open up Bible app. Let's go to the book of Acts. And I refer to the, this book as Luke Volume 2 because it was <laughs> written by Luke. And it was written probably along with the Gospel of Luke to defend the Apostle Paul as he went finally to Rome. This lay, those two books lay out the entire ministry of the early church and, and Paul's involvement. Okay, so Book of Acts. Just hit a, a couple highlights before we get really into the details that I want for Paul. Who was Paul? He was born in the city of Tarsus. Do you know where that is? Well, just so happens I provided a map <laughs> that shows Paul's second missionary journey. But if you follow from Jerusalem up through Antioch and Syria and go around the Mediterranean Sea, you will find the city of Tarsus. This is where Paul was born. I think understanding history and geography are critical to understanding a book, and that's why I do this kind of stuff. Where are these cities? Because we can read the names of these churches, but if you don't know where they are, what makes that city important, you miss part of the message. So I think this is really critical. Okay, so there, there's the city of Tarsus. This was one of the principal cities of the Roman province of Cilicia, which is in southern Asia Minor. Paul was born a free Roman citizen with full rights as a citizen of Tarsus, which made him a Greek. His parents were Jewish. Both parents were Jewish. He was raised in a strict Jewish home, and he became a part of the group the sect called the Pharisees. 
so Paul used the fact that he was a Roman citizen, a Greek, and a Jew to his advantage. Several different points in, in the story that we know. Paul was, was taught by a very famous teacher, Gamaliel, in Jerusalem. His name goes back to a name that we know from the Old Testament, Saul, who was from the tribe of Benjamin, right? And the, the name that he has is really um, a, a taking of the Hebrew word shawl, S-H-A-U-L, and turning it into a Roman name, Saul or Saulus. But we don't know him by that name, do we? We call him Paul or Paulus. That name means little. <laughs> the guy that wrote half the New Testament calls himself little. That's humility to me. <laughs> anyway, so we know him by Paul, but his real upbringing is Jewish. When Paul quotes from the Old Testament... Let me, let me throw a word up here and see if you know it. You know that word? Septuagint? So, as, as Christianity spread, one of the things is, and especially even the Jews, they, they stopped understanding Hebrew as they were assimilated into Greek and Roman cultures. And so, there were 70 scholars put together. This is abbreviated LXX. So you got 50, 60, 70. 70 scholars put together to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. That's called the Septuagint, and that was done somewhere around 285 B.C., so what's important about that? Well, when people try to criticize things like the book of Isaiah, and they say, well, it was written a lot later because it's too accurate. Well, duh, the book of Isaiah. I've seen the Isaiah scroll when we were in Jerusalem. It's all there. It matches the Dead Sea Scrolls almost to the letter, and it was translated in 285 B.C. into the Septuagint. So don't give me this nonsense about the book of Isaiah being really written a long time later. It's in this. <laughs> okay? So when Paul quotes, in fact, a lot of the quotes in the New Testament, when it quotes the Old, quotes from this translation, the Septuagint. It doesn't go back to the Masoretic text. It goes to this one, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And so when Paul does quoting, that's what he probably is using, a Septuagint. Not something uh, like the Masoretic. Okay, so that's a little bit about Paul. Let's, let's look at some of the history. You know the book of Acts. When does Paul encounter Jesus? Acts chapter 9. On the road to Damascus. That's the beginning of Paul's encounter with the risen Lord. 
chapter 10, Peter at Cornelius' house, and the door is open to the Gentiles. Skip on to chapter 13. This is the beginning of Paul's missionary journey. First missionary journey. He goes to Seleucia, Cyprus, Perga, and Antioch and Pisidia. And after that, he and John Mark part ways. So, chapter 14 carries on with that as he traveled to Iconium, Derby, and Lystra. And see, I gave you a map so you can find all those cities that are on here. This happens to be the second missionary journey, but all those cities I just mentioned are on this map. And so, if you look on here, Jerusalem is down here, right? Here's the island of Cyprus. This is really Turkey today. But here's, here's Paul's hometown, Tarsus. All the towns that I mentioned. And where we're headed in, the, in this book is, is right here at the top, at the north end of the Aegean Sea. Philippi, Thessalonica. So that's where we're headed. Chapter 15 of the book of Acts is a critical chapter. Because... The Jews did not know what to do with all these Gentiles. Should we force the Gentiles to become like Jews? That was the question. And the Lord's brother James led up the council there, and they made a decision. Should Gentiles have to be circumcised to become part of the believers? I mean, the church was mostly Jewish. So you understand their, their quandary, right? Do we make them look and talk and walk like us? And finally what came out of that council was no. No. You don't have to obey Torah. But you do have to do a few things. You don't eat things that are strangled or that, that have blood. And you don't have sexual impurity in your life. That's what, that was two of the big things that came out of Acts chapter 15, the Council of Jerusalem. But what I want to do is start reading in Acts 15 in verse 36. And so I'm going to read a few verses to get us started into Paul's second missionary journey. So Acts 15, 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So they're going to go back to where they went on that first missionary journey. And Barnabas was desirous of taking John, called Mark, along with them. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. Barnabas took John Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. I pointed that out on the map, right? But Paul chose Silas and departed, being committed to the brethren, to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So they wanted to go back. So we see a split, right? Barnabas takes John Mark and goes to Cyprus. And now Paul takes Silas and they go on to some of the other churches that were founded in that first missionary journey. So, here, here's something that, that doesn't amaze me, but it's the way God works. 
here's two guys that had worked together and they decide to split. Is that bad? Well, maybe for their relationship, but guess what? Now you got two groups <laughs> headed out telling the good news of Jesus Christ. So what looks like a negative has turned into, to me, a positive. It's just like Jesus. He said, I have to go away so the Holy Spirit can come and indwell each one of you. Because as a human, Jesus was in one spot. Now what? Every believer has got the Holy Spirit inside and we're all over the world. <laughs> I think that's amazing. So things that look like they're, because the disciples didn't want Jesus to go away, right? But he said, I got to go so the Holy Spirit can come. And indwell every one of you. So what looks bad becomes good because God works it to his own advantage. Anyway, so here's two guys. They split. Now we got two groups of missionaries going out. It's a win-win. Okay, so we're going to go on down to chapter 16 and read a little bit. And so... He came to Derby and to Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy. I'm reading this because this is the next guy that we're going to encounter in this chapter. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So here's Timothy, Jewish mother, Greek father. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him, even though what was just said in chapter 15 from the Council of Jerusalem, because of the Jews who were in those parts. I think Paul was smart in doing this. He wanted to make Timothy relatable to the audience. Paul was a master at understanding his audience. Right? Because when he went to Athens, what does he do? He talks about all of the altars to all the gods. He quotes the Greek poets. He doesn't quote Old Testament. He quotes the Greek poets so that his audience understands where he's going. Okay, so he, he understood what needed to be done. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem, chapter 15, for them to adhere. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Okay, so that gets us started then with Paul. And who did he take with him? Silas. And now, Timothy. Those three. So... If you read the rest of chapter 16, where do we find Paul starting this second missionary journey? What city? It's the city of Philippi. Can you find it on the map? It's at the very north end of the Aegean Sea. So what happens in Philippi? Paul and Silas minister the gospel. And where, where do they end up? Jail. They end up in jail. Not where you really want to be. Because jails were not nice. 
<laughs> in those days. In fact, some of the jailers were chained to the Apostle Paul. You know, their thought was, well, if we chain the jailer to Paul, he can't get away. And Paul looked at it just the opposite. If he's chained to me, he can't get away. <laughs> and I'm going to talk to him about Jesus, and he can't go anywhere. Win-win! Anyway, so they were in jail. What happens to Paul and Silas in that jail? There's an earthquake. The doors are flung open. And what happens to the jailer and his family? They're saved and they're baptized, right? Paul and Silas get kicked out of the city of Philippi and told never to return. So even though they were freed from jail, they were told to leave. So they leave Philippi, and where do they head? Thessalonica. Going through a couple other towns that aren't on your map, Amphipolis and Am... Oh boy. Sorry. Amphipolis and Apollyana. There we go. Chapter 17. Let's read a little bit here. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollyana, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. This is Paul's, this is Paul's way. He goes, Philippi did not have a synagogue. But when he got to Thessalonica, it was a big enough city that they had a synagogue. Paul is Jewish, so he goes to the Jews. And he starts his ministry in the synagogue. I want to read this because I want you to understand Paul, as he starts his ministry at Thessalonica in verse 2, and according to Paul's custom, he went, and for how many Sabbaths? Three. Saturday, Saturday, Saturday. So, how long was Paul in Thessalonica? At the most, four weeks. He was there three Sabbaths, and then we'll see what happens to him. But think about how long it takes to start a church today. You know, if you're a church planner, and you go out, and, and you get a few people that meet in your home, and then you find a building, and maybe within five years you got an established church. In three weeks, Paul built a congregation from Jews and Gentiles. That's incredible. That in that period of time, Paul teaches them, he teaches them some really, really deep stuff. Because he teaches them about what the coming of the Lord looks like. That's going to be the end of this book. So in three weeks, it had to be like information overload. I mean, Paul could talk long enough that people fell asleep and fell out the window. The guy's name was Eutychus. And I actually got a book called Saving Eutychus. And it's how not to put people to sleep while you're preaching and teaching. But apparently I haven't read it, so that was a little joke. So here, here's Paul. He's three Sabbaths in Thessalonica. What did he do? Explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer, rise again from the dead, saying, 
This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Meaning, Jesus is the predicted coming Messiah. No doubt about it. He is, not was, is Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So you got Jews, God-fearers that are Greek, and women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. So who started this riot? Just read it. Verse 5. But the Jews. The Jews started the riot. But they could only go so far because they were under Roman control. Just like with Jesus, they could not kill him. They could set him up to be killed and the Romans could do the dirty work. So what, it, what does this verse say? It says that they went in the marketplace and they got some thugs, basically, to help them. And they set the city in an uproar. And coming to the house of a man named Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people, meaning Paul and Silas. And when they did not find him, they began dragging Jason and some of his brethren before the city authorities, shouting, okay, if there's anything that I would like to be said about me, it's right here. These men have upset the world and have come here also. I'd like that on my tombstone. He upset the world for Jesus. That's the story of these men that were in Jason's household. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Here was the problem. The Jews could not do anything to upset the Romans. It was called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. If they did anything, they would get Rome upset and there'd be troops. <laughs> so they had to be really careful about what they wanted to do. But they knew they didn't like Paul because Paul said, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And so here at the end of this verse, there is another king. And here's the problem. Caesar said, there is only one king and it is me. You will bow down to me. You will offer incense. You can, you can offer incense to any of those other gods, but I'm number one. I'm the Caesar. That's part of keeping Pax Romana. <laughs> and, and so Paul and Silas upset the apple cart, and they stirred, and so these thugs from the marketplace stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things and when they received a pledge from Jason and the others they released them so here we go Paul and Silas imprisoned in Philippi they were dragged out told never to come back they go to Thessalonica what happens different town same story verse 10 and the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to another town. Look on your map, find Berea. I think it's there. Oh, it's not. It's close to Thessalonica, about 50 miles away. <laughs> All right, so they went to Berea. Verse 11, to me, is an important verse. 
Now, when they were more, now these in Berea were more noble-minded than even those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with eagerness. And what did they do? It says they examined the scriptures. How often? Daily. Daily. They were in the word to see whether these things were so. What did they have at that point? They had the Old Testament. They did not have the Gospels. They did not have any of Paul's writings. So they were going back to, to the Tanakh. Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. The 39 books of the Old Testament. That's what they were reading. So many of them believed in Berea, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. This sound, sound similar? But when the Jews at Thessalonica found... Who was it? The Jews found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there likewise, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Hmm. Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and then what happens to Paul? They're kicked out of Berea. Paul goes to Athens, and he preaches a marvelous sermon on Mars Hill, where he says, hey, Look at that statue. You even made one to the unknown gods. You're so, you're so quote-unquote, religious. <laughs> you, you're covering all the bases here. So he's talking to them right where they're at, which is what we need to do. But the response was not good. So Paul leaves. So can you find uh, Athens on your map? It's down towards the, the southern tip of Greece. He leaves Athens and he goes to Corinth. And that gets us to our story. Paul is at Corinth and he writes a letter because he wants to know how the, the church in the city of Thessalonica is doing. So he sends Silas and Timothy back. They come back, they give him a report and they say, yeah, things are pretty good. But there's a couple problems. And Paul will address those in this book. So, when was the book of 1 Thessalonians written? Well, I think we may be reading the, the first of the New Testament books. 1 Thessalonians was, was probably written around 50 A.D. When did Jesus die? Well, that's up to debate. But let, let's say, let's say 33 A.D., okay? So it's less than 20 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And Paul has, has started a number of churches, but that's, I think this book is probably the earliest of the New Testament books. There's debate whether Galatians is first or... I like, I like looking at this as the first book that Paul wrote because Paul has a style. As you read Paul's books, you will see the way he teaches and writes is similar. We see in this book, it's developing, okay? And so in chapter 18, uh, we see Paul at Corinth, and I think this is where he wrote this letter to the church at Thessalonica. Okay, too much background? I hope not. Now you know where we're at. That's the city of Thessalonica. That's how it fits into Paul's ministry. And now we can start to read a letter. Remember, 
They were there probably in 49. Who was it? Well, we'll see. Let's go to, to 1 Thessalonians now. And we'll start reading. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, it starts out. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. So who were the three guys? Paul. And yeah, but my, my Bible says Silvanus. Paul calls him by that name. And I think that's his Roman name. But we know him everywhere else by Silas. And that's why I pointed out Paul and Silas, Philippi and, and the second missionary journey. So when you start to read this, Paul and Silas and Timothy. Timothy, the, the offspring of a Jewish mother, Greek father. They were in Thessalonica, probably 49 AD. Paul ends up in Corinth, sends, sends Timothy and Silas back to find out about the church. And that's what led to this letter. Okay? So, still verse 1. To the church of the Thessalonians, in whom God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we read that name as if Christ is his last name. <laughs> That's not right. <laughs> Sorry. That's three, three titles of the Son of God. Lord, Greek word kurios, someone that has authority. Lord, Jesus, Jesus, meaning Savior or anointed, and then Christos, Christ the Messiah. So we have Lord in authority, we have the anointed Savior, and we have Christ the Messiah. Paul uses that idea because it's important to the Jews that they see that Jesus fulfills the role of Messiah that was predicted throughout the Old Testament. Okay, so what do you see in that first verse also? We see inequality. God the Father and God the Son. They're on the same plane as Paul lays this out in, in verse 1. And what does he say to them? Grace and peace. What's grace? And if you don't answer this one correctly, I'm going to sick Pastor Jason on you because I don't know how many weeks he's been preaching on grace. It is God's unmerited favor right, for us. Grace and peace. So we have, we have a Greek term, grace, the word charis in the Greek. Sometimes we call ourselves what? Charismatics? What does that imply? We are grace-filled believers. It's an important word. It's one of the key words in the New Testament. So Paul, this is Paul's style, grace and peace. If you were Hebrew, you would say what? Shalom. But it's more than that. He says grace and peace. So I cannot have the peace of God until I have made peace with God. And Paul is saying, the only way you will have peace is to accept the grace that God has given to you. 
Peace only comes through grace. And so he's using a Greek and a Hebrew greeting, and it, it, it's like he's combining them into, if you were in Australia, you'd say, good day, mate. Right? So he's taking something from both cultures and, and using a greeting that they would say to each other, grace be to you, peace be to you. And he puts them together in one verse, grace and peace to you. And so in verse 2, it says, we, which would be Paul, Silas, and Timothy, give thanks to God always for all of you. Or my translation says, y'all. Therefore, we know Paul came from what? Southern Asia Minor. Oh, sorry. For y'all making mention of you in our prayers. Paul kept these believers in Thessalonica in his prayers every day. So constantly hearing and keeping in mind your three things here. Work of faith labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. Or your translation might say patience of hope. Here's an encouragement. You've probably got your favorite translation. I don't know what it is. Mine's New American Standard. That's what I read from all the time. Maybe you like the NIV. Maybe you like the ESV. Maybe you're a, a King James person. I don't care. Get a different translation and read 1 Thessalonians from something else. New American Standard is very much word for word, formal equivalence. King James is like that. New, New International Version is thought for thought, dynamic equivalence. Big difference in the way you translate. Get something different and just read it. See how it looks different from what you're used to. I mean, I grew up King James. My father was, I hate to say it, King James only. He said, if, if the King James was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. He had to just stop for a second and, wait a minute, Paul didn't write in English? Dad? Yeah, anyway, look at a different translation. Get some different ideas about what the word means. And how do you do that? Well, you got a phone, right? Get a Bible app you've got probably two dozen translations you can download. Get, get a piece of software that's free. It's called E-Sword. I'll put the reference here, because I use this one all the time. E-Sword, sword.net. Free software. I've probably got 40 translations that are free. The only one I paid for is New American Standard. And the Lachman Foundation makes you pay for that. It's, I've got probably 100 commentaries. I've got Bible maps. I've got Bible pictures. It's, this is an incredible piece of software. I would highly recommend it, and it's free. You can't beat the price. <laughs> if you want to do some serious study, get something like that. Okay, so in, in, in verse 3, we see three things, work of faith, labor of love, and I would say endurance of hope. Do those three words sound at all familiar? If you've read like maybe 1 Corinthians 13, 
Maybe you had it at your wedding. Now these three abide, faith, hope, and love. Oh, it's Paul. He's already done it. <laughs> he's going to use that same triad, but here's the first book of the New Testament, and he's doing it already. Faith, hope, and love. Okay, so in verse 3, your work of faith, that's past. Your labor of love, that's present. And the endurance of hope is future. Paul is laying out the past, the present, and the future. And, and I know I've done this before, but I'm going to do it again anyway. There's three tenses of salvation. There's past tense. It's called justification. I was saved. There is the present tense, sanctification. I am being saved. And then there's future tense. I will be saved. It's called glorification. I was saved from the power of sin, or I'm sorry, from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and from the very presence of sin. So just like that, Paul is laying out here in this third verse the importance of faith and hope and love. And I wish we could spend more time on this, but we can't because I went way too long. I'm looking at history, sorry. Verse 4, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. What does it mean to be chosen of God? Your translation may have a word there that you go, ooh, really? Does yours have the word election there? We'll talk about that more later. The idea that God chose us. Now, let me give you a thought. There's an old, old minister, Donald Gray Barnhouse. And this is how he explained the idea of election. He said, if you were going into heaven, and uh, you know, there's no pearly gate, I know that. But imagine, there's a pearly gate, and above that gate it says, whosoever will may come. And then you go inside... And over that same gate, it says, chosen before the foundation of the world. That's the two sides of what the Bible calls election. Whosoever will may come and chosen before the foundation of the world. What's, what's the deal here? We live in chronological time, space-time that goes one second by one. God doesn't. He sees the whole parade from start to finish. He knows you don't. That's as simple as I can make the idea of the election. Some people really get hung up on that. It doesn't bother me. God chose me. How do I know? Because I want to live for Him. I want to talk to Him. I want to be with His saints. And that's what Paul says in these upcoming verses. So God chose me? Yes, that's wonderful, right? It's not a minus, it's a plus. So for our gospel, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in what? In dynamite power, that's the Greek word dunamis, and in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. The good news, the gospel, the euangelion, that was a reward in Greek culture for bringing good news. That's the word that they used. How do we distinguish good news? Probably by looking at bad news first. What's my problem? I'm a sinner. God's righteous. 
God's just. God's holy. And I in no way can stand before a righteous, holy, and just God. What does it take? It takes a sacrifice. Children of Israel sacrificed every day. And Jesus came and did a one-time sacrifice for me. And what I have to do is say yes. That brings my relationship. I become righteous once I accept the completed work of Jesus on the cross. I was chosen before the foundation of the world. That just blows me away. Okay, so we got to keep moving here. Verse 6. So, so Paul says, how do I know that I was chosen? It's not just my words, but it's the power. It's the miracles. It's the signs. It's the working of the Holy Spirit in your lives. If anybody tells you that miracles ceased with the apostles, say, show me. There's no verse that said, and therefore, thus miracles ceased. <laughs> it isn't there. I'm sorry. That's how I grew up. The sign gifts are not for today. Well, show me. <laughs> they are. Because that's the power of the Holy Spirit that changes our lives. Okay. So verse 6. You become imitators of the Lord. Imitators of us and of the Lord. How many people would you tell be an imitator of me? <laughs> Is that wrong to say? Was it wrong for Paul to say, imitate us? Imitate me, imitate Silas, imitate Timothy. And of the Lord Jesus Christ. But imitate us. That's a real challenge. Because you know that there are people that will imitate you. Your kids, the, the children that are in glow, they see you and they say, I want to be like, I want to be like clay. Really? That's a challenge. Paul says the, the believers in Thessalonica imitated us and the Lord. So to me, that's a huge challenge. In verse 7, it says, so that, this is so, so Paul, so that he's making an argument because, um, I'm sorry, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So on your map... You, you see Macedonia. Where is Achaia? It's the very southern part of Greece, down where Athens and Corinth are. So when Paul says Macedonia and Achaia, that's the two parts of Greece. That's all he's referring to. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. The Greek here is exe. It's the word from which we get echo. Echo, 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 echo. We've been in the Alps, and it really does happen. 
I've been to the Arch Abbey Church at St. Meinrad. You can sing and it takes almost five seconds for your voice to reflect off the ceiling and come back down. Therefore, you sing very slowly. Otherwise, you get this jumbled mess. Echo. So what Paul says is that these believers in Macedonia and Achaia looked at the church at Thessalonica. They said, I'm going to imitate them. And Paul said, you know what? We don't even have to do anything. At the end of verse 8, it says, there's no need to say anything because you guys have said it. You're imitating us and you're doing it. You're saying, Jesus is Messiah, is Lord, is Christ. That's, to me, that is huge praise for this new group of believers. How long was Paul there? Three weeks. And they'd already learned all of this. Timothy and Silas tell this back to Paul. And Paul says, yes, you get a gold star. You are doing it. So, here's an example to, to kind of wrap this up. Imagine that we had the, the resources and we had a stadium that would seat, say, 50,000 people. So that every night of the year we could hold an evangelistic crusade. And let's say that during that crusade, every night for 35 years, a thousand people came out onto the, the stadium floor and accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And to that you say, praise God. One thing to realize, if we did that every night of the year for 35 years, we would have fallen behind the growth of the world. There would be on a percentage basis less people saved after we were done than when we started. Now let me tell you what the Thessalonians did. Imagine, you were the only person on this planet that had, had taken Jesus as their Savior. And you say, okay, in this year, I want to lead one, one, one person to salvation in Jesus. One. And God gives you that. So in a year, now how many believers are there? Two. Right? And so let's say both of you say that in this next year, we each want to lead someone to Jesus. So at the end of two years, how many believers do you have? Four. Next year, you got eight. Then you got 16. Then you got 32. And in 35 years, you would have 35 million people believing in Jesus as their Savior. That's the power of one-on-one -on -one evangelism. You don't need a stadium. You just need a friend and a phone. And that's what Paul's saying. The, the, oh, the, the message that the Thessalonians were proclaiming echoed throughout the region. And so Paul wraps up this first chapter with something that, that we're going to have to pick up next week because it's two weeks, sorry. It flows throughout the entire book of Paul trying to help the Thessalonians solve the problem of he uses the term the wrath to come. Because there was a huge issue 
of the church. Number one, people said, oh, Jesus is coming back. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to work. I'm just going to wait for people to give me food and housing and clothes and take care of me because Jesus is coming back. That was a problem. And then they were worried about their family that had already died. What happens to them? How long was Paul in Thessalonica? Three weeks. And he'd already started to talk about what he will later call the day of the Lord. Three weeks. I mean, I know believers that have been saved for 10 years, and they can't get beyond Jesus loves me. Okay, maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we should never get beyond Jesus loves me. But three weeks. That's amazing, church. Their ministry echoed throughout Macedonia and Achaia. And this is Paul saying, good job. Good job. So here we are, somewhat close to the end of chapter 1. So what I'm going to ask you to do, if you would. you got two weeks, so this should not be a stretch. On the back side, on the map side, there are four questions. I would really like you to spend some time Read the question, read the passage, think about it, write it down. If you've got questions about something I've said tonight, text me, Facebook message me, send me an email, jim.herwig at gmail.com. If you've got a question, send it to me. I'd love to know in advance so I can come up with an answer and not have to do it on the fly. This is a fantastic book. So come back. Next week we'll celebrate Thanksgiving, and in two weeks we'll be in chapter two. And Paul starts to really get after some stuff for the Thessalonian believers. So let's pray. Thank you, God, that you've given us time in your word tonight. Help us to understand more and more and more how we can be that, how we can be that echo in this world of your love, of your power, of your might, of your strength, in everything we do and we say. So we can say, be an imitator of me. <laughs> wow. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Bless, bless this group as we go forward through the rest of the week. We pray this in thy name. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. Until next time, 